Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Surf Splendor. My name is David Scales, and my big personal news to share with you this week is that I am getting married this weekend. We're doing a destination wedding somewhere with waves. 40 family members are traveling to join us, and the worst possible way for me to host them or to kick off this union would be to work while I am gone, putting my family and my lovely bride-to-be on hold while I go and record podcasts. Can you imagine that? But the reality is I love you too, our listeners. So I am recording this in advance. Uh, Full disclosure, I'm recording this while I'm gone, but it's in advance of all of our activities and festivities. And I in fact have a very special series of shows to share with you. This was a series that I made for Visla back in 2019. It was never published here on Surf Splendor. Visla brought me out to an event that they were doing in Manly, where they had some of Australia's finest surfboard shapers in attendance, building surfboards on site. My job was to interview the shapers, help them tell their stories, and what I was able to create was a four-part series, a mini-series, and I'm gonna publish two a week here on Surf Splendor for the next two weeks. So you are, in fact, going to get twice as many episodes as you normally would while I am gone. So. I win, you win, we all win. And uh, major thanks to Visla for originally making this happen. Also today we have Sunbum with us. And I'm in fact wearing Sunbum this very moment, slathered on my skin. I'll be wearing it and trusting it to protect us this entire two weeks that I am gone. I am certain in fact that you use a type of product that Sunbum makes. So I want you to consider trying Sunbum's version of it, be it Sunblock, skincare products, hair care products, they make all of their stuff conscientiously. Cruelty-free, gluten-free, vegan. They are also reef safe. They even dedicate proceeds to build shade structures for kids at playgrounds as part of their Protect the Groms initiative. So there's plenty of reasons to use Sunbum for your protection and it's convenient to find as well. So I'd suggest supporting your local surf shop buying it there, but you can also save 15% on sunbum.com with our promo code SURFSPLENDOR, all one word. And this is just a one-time offer. It's good through the end of the year, so make sure you enjoy that on sunbum.com, promo code SURFSPLENDOR. And also enjoy this part one of four of the Shapers Shack series. 
Today's show includes interviews with Simon Anderson. Of course, he's the inventor of the thruster. We've got Tasmania's Finn Whitla. We have Sam Tian. And first up, I'm going to present to you Nick Blair of Joystick Surfboards. So this is David Scales for Surf Splendor. I'll be back at the end of the show to sign us off. And the next time you hear my voice, I will probably be married. All right. Enjoy today's show. So Nick Blair, um, actually just turned 40 last month, so on the wrong side of, of that decade. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm from uh, originally from South Africa, um, although I've called Australia home since uh, 2005, so the last uh, 14 years or so. Uh, what brought you here? Uh, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, <laughs> although she's English, uh, I met her uh, in England and... Um, we both uh, spent a lot of time in Australia. It was somewhere we wanted to end up. Um, and uh, luckily, my shaping actually brought me here. So uh, through the, the trade uh, skills assessment process, I was able to get a visa and come over. Amazing. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, probably a little bit easier access to materials and um, yeah, the I industry. Mean, back then, uh, you know, I'd, I'd grown up in South Africa shaping there, so we had uh, quite a lot of access to that. You did? Okay. Yeah. So by the time I got to... Um, to England, there was quite a burgeoning, busy industry there. I mean, their industry dates back, way back into the California days. There was that influence already. But um, I guess when I arrived there in about early 2000s, it was really starting to grow because of, uh, I guess, travel and, and that sort of thing. So when I say grow, like um, the level of surfing was starting to go through the roof. Um, there were a lot of established brands making boards that were now able to make more high-performance boards. So it really sort of was at a time when it was taking off. Um, so we had access to a lot of actually good Australian product there that was imported as well as uh, American product when uh, back in those days clock foam was still around. Um, but uh, yeah, so there's plenty to do there, um, plenty to shape, uh, but a lot of males. <laughs> oh, <Yeah>. okay. <laughs> what types of boards are you building now? Uh, look, mainly I do short boards. Um, I'd like to think I can get my head around anything. I really enjoy doing guns. Um, we don't get a lot of opportunity to do them here compared to, say, the Californians or Hawaiians, um, which is a pity because um, it's something I love to do. Um, but I have a big export market to Japan, so a lot of the stuff I will do is smaller weight boards i okay. guess that's become a speciality because of that market um but i enjoy shaping everything you know tow boards guns long boards mid lengths um I, I just love approaching uh uh you know you you can do a thousand short boards and then it's quite nice to change tact and, and yeah. do some other stuff you know it makes it interesting it keeps it interesting well yeah. the uh it was an ambitious board that you banged out right yeah. now in the shaping <laughs> bay. And did yeah. you, you did it in like an hour and a half. Well, I, I don't know, probably a little longer. You know, like I sort of, um, I knew when I did that, I thought, you know, I better grab a couple of blanks and just practice beforehand, you know, and make sure I can get it in the time um, that was allowed. So uh, it's definitely a bit harder um, in that bay with the light and, and talking to everyone to sort of keep your flow. Um, but it was a really fun experience, you know. Can you explain what you built? Um, so I did a fireball fish, which uh, Tommy Peterson uh, uh, brought to the fore and I guess invented, you could say, back in the day. Um, and it really became famous in, 
I think it was the early 90s when Tom Curran uh, rode it on some of his search uh, trips. Um, and although it was a small wave fish board, um, it sort of uh, gained notoriety for riding bigger waves. So Tom took it to Indo and rode some serious slabs on that, you know, sort of double overhead. Um, uh, he rode it at Pipeline, at Backdoor. Um, so it became a board that carried a lot of uh, um, myth behind it, you know. Um, Tommy's quite a character. If uh, you've ever met him, I don't know if you have. I personally haven't, but I've heard a lot of great stories. Um, so it was sort of being an Australian event, I thought, let me try to do something that's interesting for the audience and also pays homage to someone who uh, is well known in Australian surf folklore. Yeah. The key design features in that board okay, are so channels. Yeah, so the, the big key design, I'd say, is the step uh, bottom. So just in front of the fins, you've got a sort of um, a, a very light V shape um, where the, the bottom steps from a single concave into a V panel. Um, so you actually go from a thick tail to suddenly reducing that thickness in the space of you know an eighth of an inch um, and then thinning the tail out. Um, that rocker from your midpoint to the step is almost like a very low rocker that would hit about an inch to an inch and a quarter, I'd sort of estimate. Um, and then when you step it down, you hyperextend the rock and you really sort of bend it. So you end up with uh, you know, well over two and a quarter, I'd say, inches of rocker. Um, I wouldn't know measurements exactly in the one I hand shaped. I sort of just eyeballed it and went for it. Um, but you basically then, when you step the channels off them, you get a lot of flex in that area of tail. You get a lot of speed off your front foot with that single concave and that really low rocker. Um, and then you've got the real sensitivity and whip and speed off the channels and the, and the back foot. Um, traditionally, Tommy used to do the quite narrow noses on them, quite high entries, so it's really a board to surf off the back foot. You know, the nose gets freed up and you can really sort of carve and tear um, through smaller surf and, of course, bigger stuff as well. Fascinating. Um, is there a limitation to the length that you would build one of those with? Look, uh, most of them I've seen have been in that sort of 5, 10 to... 6.3 range. Yeah. Um, you know, they're sort of a dying breeder board now. You know, Tommy still floats around. He does some shaping. Um, he's got Corey Graham, I believe, still in Vico doing uh, his fireball fishes. Corey's a really uh, great shaper um, down in Vico who does a lot of uh, those type of boards, you know, really nice fishes, a lot of channels. Um, there's a guy in uh, Huntington Beach, I think he still is, Dennis Jarvis, who's uh, yeah. um, really well known for doing them there. Um, and that was because back in the day he owned the Spider label, which I guess he still does now. But in that same era where Tom Curran was riding Peter's, uh, Tommy Peterson's boards, um, Derek was doing a lot of boards for Tom Curran and for Frankie Oberholzer. Um, and I guess he started doing mimicking that style of board. Um, and he's become quite an expert. Um, he used to have a ghost shaper called Ian Wright, who I guess also growing up in the same hometown as Frankie in, in south of Durban in Warner Beach. Um, he also started shaping some really good ones. So those are two guys in California who are doing yeah. really amazing fiber fishes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so, yeah. so um, the funny story is Ian actually glassed the first board ever shaped. Um, no way. So, uh, and, you know, and I was just a 15-year-old Grom that sort of knocked on his door and said, can you glass this? And um, he, was, uh, he was very good to myself and my mate. Uh, you know, the boards are very twisted. Yeah. <laughs> they were very uneven, but uh, he was very good with his time and sort of uh, gave us a bit of a, a tip here and there, you know. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you're given this opportunity to come and display your wares and you chose 
somebody else's design to kind yeah. of honor. Yeah. I'm always curious with shapers how often they ride other people's surfboards. Do yeah. you? I do sometimes. Um, I've got to the stage where I guess with the experience I do have, I'm very um, comfortable with where my designs are at. Uh, although I'm always trying to push and improve them, I sort of um, I don't always have to surf a board of mine very often to know how it's going to perform, um, if it's hit the nail on the head or not. Um, so it is nice to sometimes pick up someone else's boards and have a ride because it takes you outside of your box, you know. Mm -hmm. um, the opportunity usually presents itself with things like mouths or, um, you know, strange boards, you know, because someone's always like, oh, I tried this, you know what I mean? Um, whereas if you're down on the beach uh, waxing up your JS, you know, people aren't always, uh, Nick, what are you doing? You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, look, it, it, it is a positive thing to do, I think. And, um, you know, I was just chatting to Donald um, Brink earlier. I think we were in a really great... Um, um, era and surfboard shaping with the shapers where and i think it's been driven by social media and instagram and all that where you know five to ten years ago we were all alone in our little room um surrounded by light and no one to talk to getting angry and bitter you know and uh no one talked to each other um every other shaper was an enemy um and that's really changed the last few i'd say five six seven years and it's really cool right now because everyone's sharing ideas um everyone's uh i guess the lower spirit, I guess, of shaping is starting to come to the fore again, which is really cool. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Um, why participate in an event like the Shaper Shack that Visla puts on for this event? Um, I think it's a great event to be involved in because it's so close to home. Um, and it's also something that uh, is just really interesting to impart to people what the process entails. Um, when I was about 14 years old, I remember going down to one of the Gunston 500s in Durban. Um, uh, that's what it was called at the time. I guess now it's the Mr. Price Pro in Belito. Um, and Spider Murphy, who is the other Spider label in Durban, um, he actually shaped a board in a booth very similar. Um, and his manager, uh, Graham Hines, was talking through the board what Spider was doing. Um, and that was the first introduction I had to shaping. And as a 14-year-old where you know everything is surfing, surfing, skateboarding, etc. Um, it was amazing to watch that. So um, that's actually when my journey began, seeing him shape. So I think it's pretty cool to be involved in an event like this because you never know. You know, there's, there's what are there, 15, 20 of us shaping this week. Um, there's some amazing shapers um, and a lot of different craftsmen. So there's not just, you know, we're not all shaping 6-2 shortboards. Um, and I think for people to be able to see that, who knows, maybe we'll inspire the next generation of uh, shapers. I love hearing that story. Yeah, yeah. That's a great story. Yeah, it was a, I still remember it very clearly, yeah. Well, I mean, I just am thrilled that Visla's actually doing it. You yeah, know, it's like, amazing. Yeah. There's a, been a ton of surf contests that I've been to, and um, the reality is, I think, if you're super into surfing and you care about the difference between a 6.5 and a 6.8 in the heat and the water, the best viewing experience is at home on your computer, yeah. right, where you can watch the replays. So doing events like this, it's really a community yeah. effort and outreach. And so you look at the people who are across the street right now, and it's people who don't care about the difference between the 6.5 and the 6.8. Yeah, absolutely. It's just people who want to kind of absorb this surf culture, whatever that is. And board building is a very significant part of the culture, perhaps the most important part of the culture, because yeah. without it, there is no surf culture. Yeah, you know? Absolutely. 
And so um, what's interesting to see is that the people who are just walking by are equally as interested in the shaping as they are the surfing. Yeah. They'll turn to the left, watch the surfing a little bit, then they'll come in and watch you shape a board for a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. It's and really I, cool. I think it's really good to, you know, as a shaper, you know, it's probably quite a common story. You always get those customers who walk in and the first thing they do is apologize for being a beginner um, or not that good, you know. Um, and the first thing I always say, and it's, it's just the same as today, seeing the variety of people come down to look at what we're doing, um, is that, you know, at the end of the day, when you stand up on a board and you get stoked, whether you're Kelly Slater uh, getting blown out of a backdoor um, bomb or you sort of it's your first wave and you're riding and just feeling that, that trim and that glide, you know, stoke is stoke um, and anyone can get stoked, you know. So to be able to translate that to people through what we do um, and through what Vizsla is sort of showcasing, um, I think is really great, yeah. Yeah, I think so too. I'm curious, um, how long have you been in business, first of all? So um, with the company I own now, Joystick, um, I moved to Australia in uh, 2005. Okay. Um, I had a stint uh, go shaping for a few of the Gold Coast labels then. Yep. Um, and then I started Joystick in 2007. Okay. Um, but I guess I've been shaping since my first board at age 15, so that would be 25 years now. Right. So the industry has gone through a number of changes over yeah. that time. I'm curious, what do you currently view kind of as the biggest threat to your business? What are you concerned about as a board builder? Um, look, it's a touchy subject for a lot of guys. You know, your average guy here um, will immediately shout China or Thailand. Um, and I know that's a big issue in the States right now with a lot of the shapers trying to really push. Um, and, you know, strange enough, Dennis, one, one of those really driving that, you know, built in the USA sort of um, program, um, which I, I totally get and I, t I totally believe is um, important to the guys over there, what they're doing. And it's equally important to have, but I also feel that one of the biggest threats, and it's dissipating now a little bit, but certainly a few years ago, I almost felt the biggest threat was ourselves. In other words, it was getting so competitive that to get boards out there, people undercutting so much. Um, and... A lot of guys were blaming Asia for that, you know, and I kind of felt we were to blame, you know. Um, so I can see a lot of the big labels really trying to hold their price. It's something I've tried to do, um, particularly in the last few years, is to keep that price up there. Um, and it is just to keep the industry functioning, you know. Um, it's important to do that, you know. Um, and it's also important to nurture local craftsmen, keep the industry alive in terms of making sure that those skills are passed on, you know. Um, so, look, I'm pretty positive about the future um, and the reason being because it's sort of, you know, the whole hand-shaping, uh, custom bespoke sort of board work, resin work um, is all coming back to the fore and I think that creates a lot of opportunity for guys um, and obviously Vistler with their program is really pushing that with the Shapers and Innovators program. Yeah. Um, so it's exciting, yeah. Perfect. Uh, final question is, what was the last surfboard that you rode? The last surfboard I rode, um, I don't think you classified as a surfboard. Um, I'd have to say surfboard uh, was a 6.2, um, 19 and a quarter, 2 and 7 sixteenths. Um, standard shorty I ride, it's a model called the Silent Savage. Um, uh, it's kind of my go-to board for um, just everyday surfing. I ride it in my Carvalho epoxy layup. I really enjoy um 
But uh, the last surf craft I rode was a 18-foot Molokai board. Um, oh. Yeah. Which was about a week ago, and I did my knee, and so I won't be going paddling for a while. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, and actually, one more question: Why do you have a board in your lineup named the Cab Sav? Oh uh, well, okay, so that was a that was a funny one because um, so uh, there was a guy called Mike Savage who um, uh, Derek O'Neill from Vusla and also Paul Nordia would know very well, um, and uh, Mike goes back to the pro surfer, right? Yeah, yeah. and he was you know back in the days he was one of the boys with all those guys um, and Mike's got a son called Brent um, Brent Savage and uh, going back maybe to this is a while back maybe 08 09 2010 um, I was doing quite a few boards with Brent and uh, we always used to whenever we sort of tweak something and made it sort of for him we'd call it the cab sav um, you know um, and it never really became a model and then when we designed the small weight board for um, for Japan for some reason that that name came up again and we sort of just went with that so it wasn't something that brent had been writing um but the name sort of just turned a full circle and came around and and, and that was what we went with yeah so sav is in reference to uh savage not yeah Sauvignon. yeah so i mean God, obviously man, like, everyone knows the cab Sauvignon, and then and then uh it, it's it's funny because the logo i gave to a guy called jay taplin who lives down the coast um he's a graphic artist um, really good surfer, him and his brother Tim Taplin, um, quite well known down the coast here. And, and I gave it to him and I said, like, can you create a logo for this? And he came back with a New York cab. So you've got your cab driver and his cab with a Savaloy sausage, like, on the roof of the car. You know, and back then I didn't even know what a Savaloy sausage was, you know. It's like some disgusting sort of deep-fried uh, low-grade meat sausage, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so that's now become the logo, which is obviously completely different from the wine as well. Yeah, know? that's amazing. Um, so, yeah, a bit of a funny story. Awesome. Well, Nick, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having us, man. No Cheers. Okay, my name's Sam Tian. Uh, work for Force Nine Surfboards. I'm 36 years old, and we're in Cronulla, New South Wales, Australia. Awesome. It was an interesting board that you built yeah well yeah. or shaped while you were in there yeah what explain what you did uh we did a little i did a little five foot nine uh v bottom fish uh little belly channels four belly channels through the bottom of it uh it's probably one of the probably only about the third time i've actually shaped it by hand we um do a lot of our stuff by robot we actually bought a boat robot off out of bmw in germany and really? programmed it to do a lot of our work so does most of that stuff where we CAD CAM design it and do all that stuff. So it's actually really interesting stuff we do. Okay, we will get into that, but let's go back to the board real quick. Um, explain the channels. So the channels run from the fins just to behind the front foot. So loosen the board up. Channels. So as opposed to a lot of channels we see going from kind of the back foot off the tail, yes. these are going through the middle of the board. Through the middle of the board. And, and they're also reversed. So in where, what do you mean? Where the channels are usually deeper on the outside, running back towards the stringer. These are actually deeper running into the V, so they'll actually step out towards the rail. So okay. what we've found is as you're getting through the turns in small surf, it gives you a little bit more grip because the board's got quite a bit of volume and you know, a V bottom, so it's actually quite loose. So this gives a little bit more grip and zip through the turns. Interesting. Yeah, a bit okay. of fun. We we have fairly junky surf in Cronulla, so we try and do stuff to liven it up a bit. So, um, 
traditional channels, part of the implement is speed or part of what you want to get out of them is speed too. So these channels still have that still have that feature. Okay. Feature, yeah, yeah. Got so it. just as, but also just to give it a little bit more grip in the, right. the that roll V to the bottom. Interesting. Um, let's get back. You call it a robot. How is that different than the CNC machines everybody else is using? Uh, you ever seen the, like, when they do those mega factories and you see the factory with all the articulated arms? Yes. Place, weld the cars and things like that? Yeah. Uh, that's what it is. It's Fascinating. KUKA KR150. So we were looking at buying a traditional surfboard shaped machine for a workshop. And for the numbers we were doing, we couldn't sort of get the economics of it there. So we managed to find one of these out of Germany secondhand and learned to program it and can pretty much load any custom shape you can design, any sort of file, and then machine it up. So the robot's cheaper than a CNC machine? I would think the robot would be more expensive. There is, the programming is more expensive. Um, but the machine was actually cheaper. Fascinating. Yeah, because there is, you think when one of these car lines, what they do is once they decommission a car, they clear the whole factory out and start with new robots and go on to the new thing. So, okay. yeah, we actually, there are actually quite a few of them around, so you can actually get these at a reasonable price. Got it. I mean, who knows how many buyers are in the market for something like that. Secondhand robots, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what does... I would imagine the robot has a lot more functionality than a basic CNC machine. Yeah. And what modifications did you apply to it and what does it do that a CNC machine doesn't? So it's still essentially a CNC machine, uh, but it has six axes of freedom. So standard machine is three axis, like your AKUs, sort of three and a half with the disc. Um, there is some four axis machines around, but this allows us to pretty much follow any curve and we've done all our toolpathing to actually start cutting the board like you would with a planer. So actually following the curve, taking smaller cuts as you go around the rail so you're not taking big cuts or even cuts around the board. Everything runs quite smooth and quite cleanly. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, so we're running on quite a close tolerance on the board. So basically all you're doing is finishing out the light machining marks. That's what I was going to ask you. Like, let's say a board coming off the CNC machine is 90% complete, would you say? Yeah. A regular CNC machine? Yeah. How? What percentage would you apply to yours? Oh, I'd say up around about 98. That's crazy. Is it yeah. routing fin boxes? I haven't got it routing fin boxes because I tend to find we had slight, you know, if there's any slight anything out, then your fin boxes are out. So I found it's easier to just do them by hand afterwards. Uh, we can set it up to do fin boxes, but I've actually just, tool changing and things like that is probably a bit above our, what, how much we've spent on it and what we can do. So that's sort of the next level we go to. So a human is still indexing the board, placing the board, indexing it? Yes, yeah. yeah. Okay. So we're still, we're la lighting up with the laser and rotating it. Got um, it. We did try to go automated with that. The time was a factor. Um, also, working with surfboard blanks, they're quite flexible, so they don't stay right where they should sometimes. So we found we found just about every problem along the way. Got it. Every time you flip a surfboard, your error compounds twice. 
Mm-hmm. So you go from one point, you turn it over, it's double that further out. So then you've got to work back by halves the other way to get everything correct. So right. it's quite a little, quite a lot of work went in, into the process. But interesting. So um, what's the feedback been from two sectors? Competitors, do they have an opinion on you using robot? And secondly, consumers. Uh, yeah, a lot of the competitors do attack sort of either they're no longer hand shaped, they're no longer those style of things. But um, like we're doing boards for team riders that you can make an adjustment so fine and you can actually see the adjustment and go from board to board. There's, there's that adjustment. There's no change. You can actually control everything. Uh, we've, we've done a lot of things with different stringer materials, different things. We can actually make, repeat the board by adjusting all our settings on our robot to machine the boards the same. Right. So then we can actually get a true test if board A and board B, what is the difference? So we don't have two boards that are, oh, well, they were mostly the same. So the closer we can get things, the more we can test things, the better the board comes out. So, yeah, like we get attacked. I, I have handshake boards. I learned to handshake boards, probably handshake boards for 10 or 12 years. Um, but yeah, once you get a robot there that does all the work for you, it's do you go back to write things on a typewriter, or do you you know do that? It's, yeah, so move on, move into the future, and take it with it. I don't really listen to the other people what they worry about. I've got a robot; they haven't. <laughs> does the consumer care? No, generally not. If okay. I, if a consumer wants a handshake board, I'll handshake them a board. Um, does a consumer want a handshake board? I mean, is that does that even come up in conversation at this point? Very I rarely. feel like ten years ago it did. Yeah, very rarely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But now, I'd say ninety five percent of the market out there is machine shaped boards. Yeah. Like there's boards coming in from overseas, all all sorts of different things. So it depends what kind of boards you're making. If you're making pointy thrusters or anything kind of similar to that, yeah. I don't think people care whether it's hand shaped or not. Yeah. You know. So uh, that leads me to my next question. What kind of boards are you shaping? Uh, a mixture. I do a lot of uh, long boards and I do a lot of short boards. Okay. Um, we do a lot of grom boards, a lot of sh- performance boards. Uh, Force Nine's always been performance boards, always been on that side of things. Uh, I came from doing a lot of long boards and a lot of team riders that are fairly competitive on the you know, QS and or that sort of thing so uh, yeah just mix it up under different labels and different things where the boards go so got it but we do yeah broad range of stuff um why did you participate in this Fisla event what was your interest in coming and being a part of this whole scene uh we got to start last year uh it was pretty much last minute and they said do you want to come over and shape some boards and hang out on the beach and i thought Better than being stuck in the shape bay all day, so go do something different. I mean, the the real question is more like, um, does do you think that this adds value? I think it is. I think it was really good with having the um, shaping bay, the glassing bay. Like, there is been a real disconnect of people knowing how surfboards are made. There's so many new uh, participants in the sport. Like, you know, 15 years ago, everyone was custom shaped board, they knew their shaper, they knew the glasser, they knew the sander. Now, people walk into a 
shop. They don't even know the guy's name at the shop. They just grab a board and away they go. So they've got no idea the process or what's involved to actually make that product. Yeah. So I think a lot of people at the beach here come past and they go, oh, wow, that's actually – they're in there planing those boards. They're in there doing that by hand. That's how they glass the board. Um, yeah, I had a kid that's just out of – like he's in primary school. He was in there today going – Oh, is this the foam in the middle of the boards? He had a little offcut pressing on it and going, oh, so what are they doing in the other room? Like, what's the, what's the silvery stuff he hangs over it and the liquid he's pouring on? Like, they're, they're actually learning the process and understanding it. So yeah. anything that pushes that side of it is a good thing. Like, a lot of these, the young kids before, he had, he's just had a foamy. So he's had a foamy he's probably picked up from Kmart or something like that and he's... He surfs, he thinks he's a surfer, but he's never learned what happens, how the boards are made or what they are yeah. and things like that. So it does engage them and get them involved. Um, from a sales point of view, it probably doesn't make a huge difference, but it actually gets people engaged and involved, and that, I think that's worthwhile. Absolutely. I think that's the key. And also to kind of show that it's not just a commodity – yeah. This isn't just a thing that comes out of a factory. Yeah, like they're the sausage. No. And even though you're talking about a robot, the reality is, as I've engaged with people over the years who use CNC machines and stuff like that, it's like that's the, the machine is really just to free up my time for two things, for more design work, and number two, for more customer engagement. Yeah. When somebody comes in, if I have 20 boards to bang out by hand, I'm angry that they came in because they're taking my time. Yeah. This allows me to actually chat with them more and get them dialed in to what their true needs are. Yeah, you know? and it's allowed us to remain competitive too. Um, like the cost to install a robot has allowed us to do more work, get every, keep the cost down on what we're doing and actually stay within the community where we're doing it. We haven't had to outsource, go to Asia. We can actually do produce things in-house um at volume at volume yeah yeah so we're and we're only small company now but we're running probably about 15 boards a week with two of us there cool so so that kind of segues perfectly to my next question which is um what fears or concerns do you have for the business at this point i actually think it's been pretty healthy lately um it's sort of seemed to there was quite a fear of a lot of the Asian imports and things like that damaging the industry. Um, I think it's affected some of it. It's just changed the direction of it. Uh, but it's brought in a flood of new surfers. There is quite a, you know, you don't go to the beach anymore and have a day where you score three people out in the water. You, If you're in the city, there's always 30 guys on a bank. There's always plenty of people out there. There's everyone surfing. Everyone's out at the beach. They're all through winter. They're there all the time. So it's become more constant. Um, I don't tend to... We don't tend to go through seasonal change as much. Uh, we'll pick up more in summer, obviously, but you don't find that no one going surfing through winter as much. Everyone's going surfing. So, yeah, I think there is... There's a, there's a change and there's a shift. The old style might not... You can't compete. I think there's still something there. What are your concerns for the business then? Do you have any? Or is it all pure optimism? No, I 
I see... Um, I always have concerns with some of the new materials working with them. Um, I personally react to epoxy resins when I'm sanding them. So Meaning an allergy? Allergy, yeah. So I avoid a lot of the epoxy stuff. Um, have worked with a few different ways of avoiding sanding it. Um, still working on doing different things, but we can actually... Luckily, we've got the freedom to be able to do moulds, do different things, so I can actually make the surfboard in reverse and make a mould and go backwards from it. So there is options of and freedoms that a lot of other people don't have. Hmm. Um, yeah, we've sort of made a few different things over the times and it's and it, with the with what we're doing, we sort of have taken the approach of we're working in a composite type industry. We've actually branched out into doing other items that are non-surfing related so they can keep the cash flow going and keep the business running so we can spend time making surfboards or you know play around making surfboards what other items are you guys making uh we're making we've made table legs for companies um which sounds kind of silly but it's there was an office supply company who wanted to put sell all different types of table legs and they were getting them made out of aluminium and milled and then sprayed white, so the cost of each one was in, immense. So we were end up making these ones. We'd cut them up, spray them white. They'd have them them to present. They were light. They were made out of foam and fiberglass. EPS? No, we we're using um, high density uh, dye of divinacell. Oh yeah. So we're actually using blocks of that because it actually held the shape a lot better and allowed us to take more heat. Than in yeah. the APS. Okay. So you can bake things and do things like that. So fascinating. Yeah. Getting back to the robot, um, do you foresee a time when lamination or any of the other f stages of building a surfboard become automated? Sanding could be very easily done. Could it? Yeah. How so? Um, there is actually machine sanders for machining car panels and body panels. Uh, some of you. You have a few issues you've got to work with. Uh, the fact being, if you're hand laminating the boards, you throw up more variables, so it becomes a little bit harder to get smooth. But there is actual systems to involved to actually um, machine sand the boards. So, Are those um, automotive industry sanders, are they just running an algorithm or... Are the machines smart enough to know if it's over sanding yeah, a certain they're section? Pressure sensitive. They are pressure sensitive. Pressure sensitive. That's a much simpler way of putting yeah, what I was so trying to say. So they actually they'll they'll pressure sense they're pressure sensitive and um, got it. Work with that. So do run to an algorithm essentially, but yeah, they'll okay. Yeah. So there is there is options for that side of it. Um, the thing is, as we start, if you're working with more, more and more toxic chemicals, you want to have people less and less of, around them and, like, the restrictions on people working with those chemicals can change in the future. Yeah. Um, I suppose it's also just an issue of economics. Like, the automotive industry can afford to exactly. hire robots to do their exactly. tasks, their dirty work, so yeah. to speak. So, um, you know, if you're making... Six or seven hundred dollar surfboards. You've yeah. got to make a hell of a lot of surfboards to make it back. Right, exactly. Um, but I think 
in the future we'll be looking at how they make things in those industries and how we can bring them down into surfboards. So that's how we started making things out of foam and fiberglass. We looked at brought them from other industries, but we've sort of just stayed on that path while these other industries have gone off in all different directions. And it's now how do we bring that back to what we're doing? Yeah. And so technology always becomes less expensive too. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Point in case of their robot. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm curious, do you ride other, other shapers' surfboards? Not very often. No? Not very often. No. Why not? Do you think Just, there'd be value in it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I do occasionally swap with friends and ride different boards and things. Um, generally, I'll, if there's something I like, or some, I'll usually see someone else's boards and not necessarily copy it, but you'll actually take that idea out of it and run with it in your own idea and get your own feedback on how it works. Um, I find when I just jump cold onto a board, it takes you a little, you sort of haven't got any preconceived ideas, so it's a little bit hard to figure out where your baseline is on them Yeah. when you go into a new shape. So um, I generally like to work off something that I know works and move down the line from that. Got it. Uh, final question is, what was the last board that you rode? Uh, I had a surf this morning on a nine foot five longboard just on the corner of the Con in the high tide. So it was only pretty small. So I thought I'd take the mall out and trying to compete with QS surfers for waves. <laughs> I thought I needed something with a bit of foam. So uh, Was it a board you made? Yes. Okay, there you go. Yeah, um, competing out front is a task or competing for waves out front is a task. Yeah. Those guys that are just absolute warriors. Oh, little guys there that just, and the girls, everyone's just like. Battle mode. Anything that looks like a wave and they're on it and up and riding and you know, ripping through roundhouses and things and I'm like barely standing up. And I know. It's shocking. Um, I mean, first the waves, like the actual peaks that they're, uh, utilizing for the contest are fun. Like, oh, those look good. Down the beach, I'm like, that doesn't even look surfable. And you see one of those non-competitors, a guy who will be competing later in the event, yeah. take off on a little scrap of something. It's unbelievable yeah. how well they surf. I bet you, you see them there and then there's, you know, there's someone out there learning and they're just going straight over the falls. They can't even get to their feet. Yeah. It's like the level between them and how they get the waves. And yeah, that amazing. was me, by the way. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for your time. Thank you very much. No worries. Realwatersports.com is always with us. This is our retail partner, and um, we're thrilled to have them simply because they have cracked the shipping code for the surfboard world. So surfboards are large and cumbersome, but Real offers a flat rate shipping wherever you are in the world. It's a low shipping rate. They're based in North Carolina, but they've shipped boards all the way to island chains in the middle of the ocean when people are on surf trips and they break their entire quiver. They ship them throughout the U.S., of course. Wherever you are in the world, consider realwatersports.com as an option. 
And the reason that you should also is they have an incredible board inventory. They have 1,500 boards in inventory. They have a blem section, so boards that maybe had a slight factory defect but are structurally sound and otherwise brand new condition. They're selling at majorly discounted rates. So go check them out. And then also you can grab board bags, you can grab traction, you can grab anything that you need for your surf experience, your kite experience, your foiling experience. All of it is available on realwatersports.com and they're just great partners of ours. So thrilled to have them, thrilled to share them with you. Enjoy realwatersports.com. When you're hiring for a small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role, and there's no faster or effective way than through LinkedIn Jobs. Your time and capital are precious, and there is a powerful resource that can help you focus on what you're good at and integrate people into your team seamlessly to help grow your business. LinkedIn Jobs has created the tools to find the right professionals for your team efficiently and for free. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. Everyone is already on LinkedIn with their resumes and references, and now LinkedIn has designed a hiring platform to connect you with candidates specifically qualified for the job that you post about. More than a billion professionals meticulously organized to connect people by skill set to help us all advance our position. 2.5 million businesses already use LinkedIn for hiring, and 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. It's that fast, easy to use, and effective. LinkedIn Jobs can help you write job descriptions, filter the right person to you, and give you the tools to help you interview them like a pro. LinkedInjobs.com surf is where you go to post your job for free. Yes, totally free. That's linkedinjobs.com slash surf to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. So my name is Finn Whitler. I'm 38 and uh, I'm from Tasmania, a little town out of uh, Hobart called Seven Mile Beach. Awesome. And my um, brand is Faze Surfboards. Very good. Um, we just talked about it when we were walking over, but listeners deserve to hear as well. What the heck are you doing here in Sydney and why participate in this Shaper Shack yeah. Um, event? Yeah, so um, last year I had the, uh, the fortunate phone call from a friend who's the uh, rep for Vistler in the southern states of Australia and, and he said, look, we've come up with a, there's a, a vacancy for a, um, a Shaper to come up here. Would you be interested? And I had two weeks to prepare, get flights, a comm and all that sort of stuff and, of course, nothing was booked. Everything was booked out. There was no accommodation. Managed to get some flights and he said, look, just get up here and, you know, if you've got to sleep in a board bag on the beach, then so be it. I was like, right, I'm doing it. And then a friend of mine called me and said, hey, I'm flying out the same day. You're coming in. I'll leave my Tarago at the airport and you can just take the keys and you can have it for a week. So that's what I did and I slept out the back of Manly here in, in the Tarago and shaped. Uh, I was actually – I was – on the Saturday, so I was shaping in between Sharma Buttonshaw and uh, Wayne Lynch. Wow. Yeah, so that was, yeah, something Heavy. else, yeah. So the question is, why do it? I mean, you get that call, what's the value proposition for you to do something like that? I would imagine it's a little bit of a burden, probably resource-wise, mm. to even pull it off. Yeah, and financially um, as well, it's sort of... That's what I mean. It was yeah. all off my own back, um, but it's one of those things, like growing up in, in Torquay, there's quite a good scene down there, um, a lot of more shapers than when I was there living, you know, living there 10 years ago. Um, but in Tassie, 
you do, do feel slightly isolated down there. You're sort of broken away from the mainland and just getting materials is an absolute pain. Like it's costly, expensive and just, you know, you're waiting for blanks to come down and that sort of thing. So coming up here and just sort of being in the vibe and in the sort of heart of surfing in New South Wales is pretty crazy. And I met a bunch of shapers last year that were, you know, good friends now. So, um, yeah, it was, yeah. Definitely worth it. Okay, good. I'm yeah. glad to hear that. Um, tell me about building boards in Tasmania. First of all, why are you there and why are you building boards there? And then secondly, um, who were kind of the forefathers in that, mm. in board building there? Yep. So uh, um, I, I started building boards in, in Torquay, in Victoria, um, with Morris Cole and Strapper Surfboards down there. I was with those guys for seven or eight years. Um, sanding mostly, um, probably sanded three and a half, four thousand boards or something over the course of a few years, and um, a a love interest took me to Tassie as they do. Uh, we're doing long distance for about a year and a half, and thought I really love Tassie, and there's some great festivals down there, um, really cultural sort of festivals. Um, one in particular, Dark Mofo. That's probably a lot of your Australian listeners would have heard of it, um, but it's just it's an amazing city. Um, there's a lot of art and creative people down there um, and quite a lot of surfers. Um, there's really fun waves all around Tassie, but it's quite fickle. It relies heavily on particular swell directions. It can be 10 degrees out and that makes a difference between six foot and one foot. Um, so when I first moved down there, getting my head around um, swell predictions and forecasting was just it took me years really? to get it right. Um, growing up in Torquay, you know, you pull up a juck and you go, right, I'm going to Bells or I'm going to 13th. It's, it was just easy. Um, but surfing in Tasmania is quite hard. But um, there's a great bunch of shapers down there. that So everyone's kind of keeps to themselves, but um, uh, always willing to sort of, you know, if you need a blank or you need some fin plugs, everyone's kind of, you know, willing to help out. Mm. Um, but I think I maybe sort of uh, wanted to sort of take it to the next level, uh, which is kind of why I jumped on to, um, you know, the opportunity to come up here because I do like to – I really want to be amongst all these guys up here. Yeah. So um, so are you – the boards that you're building in Tassie, are they mainly to supply Tassie surfers or are you sending boards out? Yeah, at the moment, um, shipping is really gnarly. Um, wow. Everywhere it is. Yeah. yeah. And well, unpredictable too. Yeah, it's probably 50 to 60%. Um, you can almost double the, the freight charges between Sydney and Melbourne and Melbourne and Hobart. To set for me to send a board to Torquay, which is like 500 Ks, it's nearly $300, which is half the board's cost. Yeah. It's just insane. So um, a lot of my customers and my, you know, a lot of my clientele is Tassie-based, mm. um, which is quite nice. I like people coming, I like people coming to me and, and uh, actually coming to my little shaping bay and and we sort of work through boards and work through ideas and they'll go away. They've come back. I've got a couple of guys that have had three, four boards. And they're like, oh, this was sick, but can we just do this? And, you know, and then we do that and then they're just that next level of enthusiasm gets, keeps on going and it's just, yeah, it's awesome. Good. Or what kind of boards are you building? So I sort of mainly, it's quite a funny one. Tassie's very sort of performance sort of orientated um, because our waves come and go quite quickly we have these swells that sort of peak and then they they die you know, you've, you've got literally sort of four to five hours to surf so a lot of the guys down there just want to grab that board they know is going to work mm. um, they don't want to sort of mess around and try 
new things, so to speak. So um, I do a few retros, like twenties and single fins, which I've been sending to Torquay and a couple up here. Um, but a lot of my boards in Tassie are just sort of performance boards. But then they, you know, they love to get sort of around like tints and all that sort of stuff, which is cool. Got it. Yeah. Are you? Um, what's your setup? Do you have? A laminator, a sander. Are you shaping everything by hand? What's your? Yeah, so I, I, it's just me from start to finish. Um, so I shape the board. I'm actually in the middle of building a new shaping bay. So at the moment, I've kind of got this one room that's split down the middle, and I'm glassing on one side, but I can't do both at the same time. Okay. For um, obvious reasons with dust, so I'm sort of switching between the two. But um, yeah, at the moment, I will have um, you know, when I get back, get into this new glass, uh, new shaping bay that allow me to free up my other my current room and that'll be just just glassing mm. so yeah keep it spotless and um you know better boards and that sort of thing what did you shape here today so I shaped, yeah so i shaped a 510 uh to thrust a sort of performance retro 20 kind of style like outline um with a slight beak nose but um i sort of have put a bit of a performance uh sort of bottom contours on it um, a lot of the boards that I make in Tassie, I sort of put a slight, slight single concave through to a pretty deep double, and then uh, sort of flat through the fins, and then a V off the tail, okay. um, which helps sort of our waves tend to be, especially our beach breaks, tend to be sort of quite flat. Um, so the double concave, like slightly aggressive, it's probably a trait I learnt off Morris as well. He loves his double concaves almost go through to the deck. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I love that feeling of the board's lift and just acceleration. So, yeah. yeah. What do you think the value is or do you see value in this shaping bay setup event at a surf contest? Yeah, so just for people to be able to see what it's like before they might you know, have particular questions. I was looking at this morning and when I was in there, a lot of people sort of coming up, they were – seeing what I was doing for you know, sort of 15, 20 minutes and then they would get on a mic and, and ask me a few questions and you just don't have that opportunity at a regular shaping bay. They can be – I think my, most people probably feel a little bit sort of intimidated by going into a shaping bay um, with a shaper. So being able to sort of see what's going on first and then, so, you know, basically being a fly on the wall with these perspex windows and, and that sort of thing and sort of – getting an understanding of what's going on and then say, oh, why did you do that or what's going on there? Because um, while people, someone is shaping, I guess, at the same time, um, you know, we're getting questions thrown at us and that sort of thing. So it's, um, yeah, it's kind of an inter interaction sort of, um, uh, sort of act, you know, activation, I guess. And there's, um, you know, the addition of the glassing room this year is uh, they were talking about it doing it last year and um, to see that actually sort of come to fruition and um yeah it was uh pretty amazing and then donald brink was in there this morning you know he was or he actually glassed his board last night and i think he's putting the deck on it this morning so um i'm probably going to glass mine before i take it back it'll probably withstand freight <laughs> withstand airlines a little bit better yeah. than just foam so uh yeah we'll see what happens yeah interesting i need maurice stories now uh you start you said you yeah. started out with maurice in victoria um first of all i can't imagine working for him I love Maurice and yeah. I want to sit across the table from him for an hour or two every once in a while. Yeah. But what was your experience working there? Yeah, it was, he, oh, he's such such an amazing guy. Intense, but just just the biggest heart 
um, under it all is um, quite amazing. I remember um, I went snowboarding once. He'll, he'll probably laugh at this story. And he actually fired me. And But then a couple of days later rang me up and said, oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> come back. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, I went to the snow and we lost the keys to the car and we got stuck there for about five or six days and it was in the middle of a really big order. Like it was probably one of the France orders. So I remember in your interview he was talking about the Japan orders that he was doing. When he was in Torquay, um, it was mostly France. There was some, some other big ones, but we were sending container loads of boards to France and, and we were sort of in the middle of one of those and I was filicoating at the time. So I was laying up 15 to 20 filicotes at a time. Um, doing about 20 to 30 a day. Wow. And um, went to the snow on the weekend and didn't come back for about six days trying to get this car. We'd borrowed the car and just it was just a series of just nightmare events. And anyway, I got back to the factory on like the Thursday or Friday and he sat me down and said, you're fired basically. <laughs> and um, so, but then at the end of the week he called me and we we're back in there. So, yeah, but um, it was a, a really special time I think to be working there there was a really good crew you had um like the Sander George just the funniest guy ever and um you know we had Kirk Hammett coming in to order boards and uh you know all these all these famous people so yeah what an experience yeah yeah nice um good fun how long were you there uh six years amazing yeah six or seven years and um we actually helped sort of put together his current factory at the moment so we laid the slab for that so when he started base he moved out of his Baines Court factory and into the uh the chook shed as it's known and um yeah so we we set that factory up and he kind of got up and running and then the guy uh went to strapper surfboard and was sanding there and then that's when I kind of started to uh just sort of contract out to a lot of people so I was sanding for Morris strapper Mark Phipps in um, Bowen Heads and a few other people so Cool. Yeah. Very cool. Um, I'm curious, do you ride other shapers' surfboards? I've still got – one of my favourite boards is a Morris Cole. Really? Um, yeah, a board that uh, he shaped probably in 2000. Um, it was sort of the start of the Mermaids that he started doing and it was just super deep concaves, 5.9 by 21 by 3, um, just the funnest board. So mm. uh, still got – yeah, I still have that. It's got red X fins in it, so the ones that go through to the deck. Mm -hmm. um, and they were notorious for um, delam and collapsing of foam around the, the top of the um, the top of the plug. So I'm sort of in the middle of maybe pulling those out because I'm I'm just keep repairing them. Okay. Yeah. So I'll probably uh, pull those out and put futures in or something. So. Okay. But um, just going through some of the guys' boards here now is holding one of Mooney's boards and yeah, I I, I think riding other people's boards is a, you know part of probably you know most shapers sort of repertoire and just you, getting to know different feelings and that sort of thing it's sort of it all helps you would think yeah but i'm telling you 50 percent of the people i ask that question to say no they only have time to ride their own stuff yeah yeah you, know, you run out of days of the week yeah totally yep so. i mean 80 percent of the time i'm riding my boards but i yeah. do like yeah I'll, I'll i'll take a couple down the beach and if i have got time then uh, i'll jump on one for sure i'm glad to hear that um I'm curious to hear what your biggest concern is for your business right now. Um, definitely the cost of materials. Um, I'm currently just making boards on my own property down in Seven Mile Beach. So the thought of having to expand and go to a commercial estate um, would 
just crush my business. Um, you know, the sort of the overheads are involved with, uh, you know, um, a, a warehouse or a factory of that sort of size. But what I'm sort of looking at is potentially coming to the mainland. I think in sort of a five-year, ten-year sort of plan um, is to sort of make my way over, back over this way um, and just kind of be around, um, I guess, the, the, the sort of mecca of the surfing and shaping scene over here. Mm. The I noticed a wedding ring on your finger. The girl that you chased yes. to Tassie, did you end up <laughs> married to her? Yes. There yes. you go. Two it's kids. happy ending. Really? Two little boys, yeah. Congrats. Yeah, they're all up here at the moment, so no, Good. They're, they're loving it. Good move, by the way. Yeah. To go to Tassie. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, so we did long distance for a year and a half, and um, I sort of, yeah, made the choice to just go down because it's – a beautiful part of the world so if you get the chance to get down there definitely do it is there a growing market there or is it pretty yeah. cottage small yeah it, it's i think it's um it's definitely growing um just if we had consistent waves i think it would be a lot different um because you sort of see these people when the surf's good and then you just don't see anyone for a, a while and winter's the best time to be in tassie for surf like we generally get pretty good waves all through winter yeah. Um, but there's some amazing beaches, especially south, um, that you're waiting for the swell to go down, um, just because they're, you know, these open way open beaches are, um, you know, the sort of regular three to six meters right. for most of the time of the year. So, right. Final question: What was the last surfboard that you rode? Uh, one of mine. Uh, so it was a an EPS. Um, actually, I was listening to uh, your interview with Dave Palmer about all the different construction types and and so I actually used the Entropy Bioresin which was the highest plant grade um, bioresin from Entropy and uh, it, it I can tell you it's like a murky river brown water when you pour it on and it just it doesn't look good but um, it's really nice to work with uh, it just especially in Tassie I think one of the hardest things about me it was great to listen to that podcast because it sort of opened up my eyes with the space that I have and trying to because the temperature drops, it, it can get down to sort of minus one, minus two, and you just can't work with that. Kind, like it, the resin's like putty. Um, and then the sun comes out, it heats it up, and then it's all of a sudden you're at 30 degrees. So you just got to keep on watching that thermometer. Um, but working with the um, the entropy bioresin, it was sort of just ran through the through the, um, through the the cloth so easy. Hmm. Um, yeah, Does it, it finish clear? No, it still it, got it brown? Act, it's quite brown. Yeah, okay. but there's like um, Dave said, there's three different grades. I think there's uh, light, and then there's like a really bright light, um, but uh, not quite as friendly mm. as the the more sort of plant uh, plant based one. So right. yeah, what? Um, how do you get those supplies? Is there any distributor distributor in Tassie, or does it all come from Australia? Yeah, so there's a little fiberglass shop that does a lot of boat building yeah um it's the way it always works in the surf world yeah so i get a lot of the resins and stuff through those guys my cloth comes from shapers um just online um and then my blanks uh core um which they're based in currumbin and i've been ringing guys all around australia and no one wants to like he's like dude it's going to cost so much money yeah. to send me send blanks down there so I've, there's actually a um a distributor for core living in um bowen heads Corey russell so he's been flicking them over to me, which has um, been a huge help. Um, but someone mentioned the other day, he's like, oh, you should get in contact with removalists because if you get someone who's removed, like, you know, moving their house from Queensland to Tassie, you can just 
fill their truck up with blanks, yeah. like the the extra space, and you you don't pay for that. So yeah, or it's a lot cheaper anyway. So there you go. Yeah, there is ways, but yeah, the cost of getting materials and supplies to Tassie is yeah prohibitive. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, hey, great to connect with you. You too. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Simon Anderson, 64, Simon Boards. Simon Boards. Yeah. Got for it. For want of a better name. <laughs> um, well, thanks for making the trek. No worries. Just out of the bay. Yeah, no kidding. What'd you build? What'd you shape? Um, I shaped two boards from pre-shapes. I'm not really doing any full shapes at the moment. So uh, that was going to be too hard a task to do a full shape. So I just bought two pre-shapes. One was a Cooper Chapman file, uh, a typical board that he would surf and did surf at Manly this week. And the other was a board for Adam Robertson. He's uh, kind of a team, old team rider from Victoria. Came second at Bells to Paco and something or other. One year. Through the trials. Uh, through the trials, yes. Uh, so I did a board for him, a 6.0 kind of volume-added board with chunkier rails and thicker nose and tail. And, yeah, similar rocker, uh, similar concave to the Cooper board, but, um, yeah, just the chunkier, uh, wider nose, a normal tail, round tail board. What's Adam up to nowadays? Uh, he's working with Surfing Australia or Victoria, one of those two. Uh, so he's staying active uh, in that way. He's got a young son who he's surfing quite a bit with. Uh, he also works on the Bells event at Easter time or whatever time it's going to be this year. Is it still going to be Easter? I don't know. Easter, it's the second week in April this year. I don't know when the Bells event mm -hmm. is. Yeah. Well, they pushed Snapper way back. Yes. So it might be after Easter. Yeah, later the better, apparently, for down there. So we make it good ways for bells. That'd I think be, that's the that'd idea. That'd be nice. Yeah, yeah. Why come participate in an event like this, considering that it is out of your way and requires a bit of effort? Uh, yeah, it's funny. Um, it's pretty close to me because I, I live on the northern beaches at Newport. But it's actually a bit of a hassle to get down to Manly. It's for like a 45-minute drive, and then you've got to park, and then you've got to walk to the event site and it's crowded and Kelly's here this year and there's masses of people. Uh, but I was invited last year but the scheduling wasn't quite working out and I checked the event while it was going on. I saw that Wayne Lynch participated and I had a look at some of the shapers and the boards that they produced and uh, I thought it was very interesting. So um, there's no reason for me not to come down and be a part of this and uh, I think it's a good initiative. Um, and it's well supported by shapers, so uh, I ha I'm happy to be involved. Yeah, that's more what I mean. What about the initiative do you think is valuable? Uh, its value is, well, it's good, good exposure for um, relatively obscure shapers in Australia who are talented and deserve more recognition, I suppose, and it's hard to get it off your own bat on social media and uh, in print media or whatever. Uh, it's hard to get recognition for your work and anyone who's working in our industry is uh, doing a good thing yeah, and doing a hard thing. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why all the other, the young guys, guys from Victoria and parts further afield bother to come 
here for a shaping exhibition, um, but they did and they are, and uh, it's kind of it feels good. And the, we had a night last night at the Stain, uh, all the shapers together in one room, open bar, very nice. <laughs> that always helps attract people. <laughs> well, yeah, it attracts me for sure. Um, so I asked those guys from Victoria why they put in the effort to get here, and yeah. their answer was to spend time with guys like yourself. Nice. They said that they don't often get the opportunity to be in the same room with a bunch of different shapers. Mm. And furthermore, what they've seen is that um, some of the older generation is actually eager to share information, and it would, why wouldn't you come and kind of glean that information yeah. from them, you know? Yes. Uh well, yeah, like I said, I saw uh, photos of the boards that were done from last year and it was very interesting and I liked mm -hmm. the, the look of a lot of the shapes and there was a lot of different shapes, uh, not necessarily high-performance thrusted uh, style boards, uh, which is how the industry is going in that other direction for uh, more sensible volume-added volume surfboards. So, uh, yeah, I wanted to come down and check it out and uh, I figure if Wayne Lynch is involved, then... It's probably a good idea for me to be as well. I mentioned that some of the younger guys, part of the reason for them coming is to interact with guys like yourself. How does that feel? Do you feel pressure by that? Um, no, not really. Um, I feel some sort of responsibility. I, I know that Wayne always says that uh, uh, it's the responsibility of the older people to pass down the stories to the younger people and... Uh, I kind of pay attention to what Wayne says. Uh, you know, Wayne's not always right, <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, he's a, he's an icon of our sport, and to me, he's the greatest exponent surface shaper that we've seen in surfing. Is that right? I believe so. Um, and that is a, a surfer and a shaper, uh, where the shaper is you know kind of involved in production and. You know, like MP, you could argue that MP was maybe the greatest of all time, but he wasn't really a production shaper as far as I know. But Wayne has been in the bay on and off uh, over the years, for sure. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so that's why I kind of put him up there. So you're taking his cue in terms of trying to showcase some of that information with the kids? Uh, yes. Uh, I, it's been interesting to see that uh, the younger guys are – Younger shapers are interested in talking to me. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm, I don't know. I don't know that they've quizzed me about uh, uh, the inner workings of surfboard making or that side of things, but uh, yeah, it's uh, coming together. Maybe they're curious to see what I'm shaping, and I'm certainly curious to see what they're shaping. I, I think they're intimidated some of the times, you know? Yeah, well, I think that's uh, one of the. That's the involvement of being a shaper. Uh, you know, you've got to get to the point where you believe in what you're doing and you're not intimidated by anyone. And if you're doing a board for Kelly Slater, you're not nervous about shaping that board and you, you believe in your abilities and you believe in what you're doing. And that's the one thing about being a shaper. I think, you, you know, whether you're right or wrong and who knows whether you're right or wrong. No, there's no tank testing, no definitive answer to anything in surfboard making. Um, but you've got to believe in yourself and what you're doing and think that that's the right way to go and, and you believe in that because of your own experience by making a board for yourself and surfing it and then getting other people to surf it and the feedback from them and uh, yeah so I think that's 
if I could tell them anything, it'd just it'd be believe in what you're doing and uh, don't be unnecessarily influenced by others. That's good advice. Uh, to regurgitate a question from last night, um, do you ever feel typecast by uh, your invention of the thruster? Um, yeah, possibly. Uh, I've had Wayne, I'll go back to Wayne. Uh, I've had Wayne say to me, you're more than just a three fin. Uh, so um, that made me think about it a little bit. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a legacy, I suppose, and uh, something that I don't think about too much. Uh, but as the years go on and, you know, guys on the tour are still surfing high-performance thrusters and it's kind of design I was responsible for. It's, you know, it's, it's a good thing and it's helped me through the years in the industry. It's, you know, got me to be able to do boards for Kelly and Andy probably at critical times for them and for me. Uh, I remember the first board I did for Kelly... I think it was taken over to Jeffrey's Bay by Rod Brooks. This is in 1996, and I was making boards in Japan, and my numbers were 300 a year over there, which wasn't too bad. And I got a board to Kelly, and he surfed it in the event, won the event, and uh, next season my numbers jumped to 600, so it doubled my numbers, so it means a lot. Mm. I remember that board. Um, do you remember the length of it? It seemed six, a little longer. Six, three. Oh, really? Yeah, those, I made him two boards for JB. Okay. In 2004, I think, 2004 or 5, uh, I made him the 6-1 round tail that he beat Andy in the final in. Yeah. I remember that, um, the mid-'90s one. It just seemed like those arcs that he was doing were a lot longer and, like, more drawn out, mm. which is why I thought the board was longer. Yeah. But maybe 6-3 was long. 6-3 is, yeah, pretty long for Kelly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the typecast thing, the way that... I mean, the reason why I ask is um, certainly the legacy has value. The fact that it's still the standard validates the legacy. But was there ever any time in the last 30 years where you introduced a new design and the market just did not respond or didn't have any interest in it at all? Um, not that I can remember. I've been racking my brain and working hard to come up with something groundbreaking and new and... I guess we all are, and uh, those sort of things don't come along too often. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think when I, I bought out the thruster, uh, it wasn't accepted as well. So uh, if I have bought out a new design and it hadn't been accepted, well, you know, I'd be prepared for that. Yeah, yeah, that's a gr I mean, that detail about it not being accepted is actually worth exploring. What was the market response and then what validated it? Uh, yeah, well, when I came up with the idea, uh, I was surfing single fins and twin fins, and I was loving uh, those boards. Uh, maybe not so much the twin fin, but uh, they're okay in one foot surf. Uh, but I was loving my single fins, and I just, uh, 1980, just started surfing a no-nose concept uh, bought out by Jeff McCoy. So there's a guy who bought out something that's a legacy of his. And uh, Anyway, um, and that turned out to be... Uh, the blueprint shape for the three-fin board that would come later. So I figured that um, if if I surfed it and I thought it was 20% better and I told the marketplace that, they'd believe me, but they didn't because uh, obviously it looked weird. Uh, three boards on top of the, the board, and sorry, three fins on top of the board <laughs> instead of one or two, it just looked a bit ridiculous. And I remember a photo back then from when we were in Hawaii and we had like, 
five boards on the roof of a car and there was three fins on each board so there was like 15 fins and it, it was kind of ridiculous but uh, when I first started doing boards in the US through Nectar and Gary McNabb uh, in 81 January I think of 81 we went over to Orlando Florida to the trade show and uh, that's where I introduced the thruster in the US and I hadn't won a contest at this stage and I'd just been surfing it and uh, I was telling everyone it was good and most people were believing me, some not. Anyway, we displayed it at the Orlando trade show and I got three orders for the thrust, my thruster model through Nectar uh, at the trade show and the hot item of the trade show was a beach mat. So, <laughs> so it was pretty inauspicious entry into the US. But uh, Gary gave me some sage words. He said, Simon, you're going to have to win a contest. And, you know, that's what I was working towards and hoping to do and was able to do you mentioned last night having a new found or a new interest in asymmetrical board design yes. what sparked that and what do you know about it what's your thoughts on the theory uh, i know nothing about it i've seen various types of asymmetrical boards on social media and they look way out there um i saw dane reynolds riding a fork pick nose tail twin fin i don't know that it was asymmetrical but uh, the surfing he was doing on that board was amazing and you know again is it dana is it the board right uh, probably a combination of both um so all keeping an eye on social media and and various people working on it uh, you know it's interesting it's obviously different and looks different and uh, you can tell it's different and that makes a difference uh, so that sparked my interest then i heard the other day on uh, the webcast um, they had uh, a guy, I forget his name now, sorry, but um, the guy who's working on a lot of asymmetrical boards and he was talking about his theories and uh, how complex it was, uh, even though he was just making subtle differences from one side to the other, but then, you know, adding different size fins and shapes and placements and stiffness of, of fins. So there's a, obviously uh, unlimited stuff in, in there that you could work on. So. I haven't got to the point where I feel the need to make one, but I'm keeping my eyes peeled. Would you ride one? Yes, of course. I'd ride anything that would, would help me surf better as I get older. Yeah. That's my mission. Good. It's a good mission. It's a um, worthy mission. Yeah. It's a mission you can maintain regardless of age. Yeah. I just kind of fell into it. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to advocate for asymmetry real quickly because I'd be sure. curious to hear your thoughts. Um, I've ridden a few, or I have a few boards. And Donald Brink, who was there last night, has yeah, done the most articulate. Oh, okay. Yeah, Donald. He's done the most articulate job of anybody. And when you talk to, I've talked to Carl Ekstrom about it. I've talked to a number of guys, and they all explain it differently, which I think actually um, doesn't help the cause at all. Yeah. But Donald, I think, does the most articulate job. And the basic notion is, your stance is not symmetrical. Mm water never traverses the board symmetrically and so trying to make a board symmetrical was never really that it wasn't really a great concept in the first place it's logical because there's so many variables in the design that you're trying to basically narrow eliminate variables and isolate um, and so with asymmetry you're opening up a lot more variables and then trying mm. to control for things so i think that's why ace why sorry symmetry was ever um, tr trying to be achieved in the first place. But a couple of key differences with your foot, like your center of 
um, the weight isn't in the center of the foot. It's actually closer to the heel. Your mm -hmm. heels are heavier than your toes. Yeah. So your heel side rail can actually be thicker and narrower. Mm -hmm. Your toe side rail can be longer and thinner, and your mm -hmm. toes have the ability to leverage as well. They can push down, but they can also pull up, whereas your mm -hmm. heels can kind of only push. Yeah. So understanding those kind of fundamentals about the way that the foot works mm -hmm. allows you to then come mm -hmm. up with some theory about the way that one side should be different than the other. What they're doing with rail lengths at that point and contours and edges is all kind of beyond my understanding. But those mm -hmm. are kind of the basics of it. Yeah. Yeah, well, it sounds, sounds okay. <laughs> uh, to me, the ultimate test is to get someone on the tour with that sort of board under their feet, you know, yeah. and scoring nines and stuff, uh, and I'll really take notice. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think part of the, the issue with that is judges almost don't know how to process something that looks different. Mm. Yes, well, if it's that good, then it's got to be made into a board that the judges can understand. <laughs> I think a lot of the changes can be subtle. They don't yeah. have to be freaky looking. Yes, you know? well, I'll mention this right now because it seems to be relevant. I saw a film uh, on Thursday night um, in, what was it, Sharon? Yeah. Oh, On the Edge of a Dream. On the Edge of a Dream. Yep. Yes, and uh, the surfing, it wasn't an asymmetrical board, but it was a way different style of board um, with a different bottom. and. Some of the turns in that film were just incredible, in incredible moments in like surfing, and it was like Dane was kind of doing a turn on that thing. It was uh, Ellis Erickson. Ellis Erickson, yeah, he's an incredible surfer and uh, probably a pretty good shaper. Um, so yeah, there's, you know, there's there is places to go with uh, surfboard equipment, and you know, it's endless trying to get exactly the right board for the individual and. You know, that's kind of our job is to get that as close to right most of the time and then we've done, we've done a good job. Yeah. Um, how often do you ride other shapers' surfboards? I rode... Um, uh, sorry, I'm a senior moment. Um, but I, I rode uh, another shaper's board in Hawaii uh, many years back and... Uh, he made the rails a bit too thick for me because I'm a big guy and he was not a, a big guy. And that generally happens. Um, and little guys generally make big guy boards too fine in the rail. Uh, but this one was too too thick. Uh, so it was one of the rare occasions that I surfed someone else's boards. But uh, it's a big regret and and not um, that I didn't ride more people's boards in on the North Shore during my surfing career. Uh, but uh, I was back then I was on a mission as well funnily enough and that was to uh, do a good job as uh, an Australian board maker and make a board that went well in Hawaii and I did that over several years several seasons and I had some success and you know a lot of years I'd go there with not very good boards and uh, didn't help the cause or the confidence on the North Shore right. but uh, no I haven't surfed too many other guys' boards, um, but I'm certainly open to it. I got a board off Sharma Buttonshaw about two years ago. We did a little program where I made him a board and he made me a board. I asked for a seven foot nine, so that was a difficult assignment for him. He's a young shaper, and to make a, a bigger guy, longer board for you know six to eight foot, not 
big, not giant surf by any means, but uh, performance seven nine was tough for him. He he uh, did me a pretty good board, and the board I made for him, he didn't surf for three years because of injury and oh, he <laughs> blew out his knee. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so but he apparently likes that board. So yeah, I'm open to it, but don't generally get the opportunity too much. But uh, yeah, I, I think uh, you know, getting information any way you can is uh, is the way to go. Um, you've been around, you've seen kind of the surfboard market, the surfboard industry, um, and a lot of different incarnations over the years. I'm curious what you view as a threat or a concern to your business currently. Uh, yes, uh, the Chinese thing was always viewed as a threat. Um, and after seeing that kind of come and go, although it's still there, um, I think all that that has done is add value to what's real and authentic and local and um, so I, I don't see too many serious threats to our industry maybe uh, this oil business um, our dependence on oil is a bit of a problem and if we find alternatives and uh, then we don't have uh, we run out of foam fiberglass that might be a problem but I think we can always find other materials that we can make boards from and still have fun in the surf and but yeah, it's uh, it is strange, or it's it's a curious fact that um, after all these years, foam with the wood stringer and fiberglass is, still feels the best, or it is seems to be uh, the the best material for high perform high performance boards. Yeah, it is interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, the final question is just: What was the last surfboard that you rode? Yeah, I I make the. Good thing about my current circumstances, I'm licensing boards through Onboard in Monoval. So uh, I'm able to make a lot of boards for myself to test them out. Excuse me, <laughs> I've no, been in the bay so my throat is a little scratchy. So the last board I surfed was uh, a Five Spark and it felt pretty terrible. And the day before I surfed uh, a Mollusk style, more of a souped up version, uh, more volume added, and that was a 6.6 by 20.5 by 2 and 11, 16, so I think 38.5 litres. And that felt really good, single to double. In what style of waves? Um, as a little reef surf, uh, two foot peak at Newport, where I live. Uh, nice little waves, uh, uncrowded, which is a bit of a rarity, so uh, I got to surf quite a few little waves and uh, get a rhythm up and had a good surf. Good. Awesome. Thank you so much, Simon. No worries. All right, we have links to all of these fantastic shapers and their work on surfsplendorpodcast.com. It was really great actually listening back to these episodes. Feels like only yesterday that we recorded these. Uh, thanks to Visla for this opportunity and experience. Much appreciated. Also, thanks to sunbum.com for your support and for your protection daily in our lives. Um, I will be back with part two of the Shaper Shack series in a couple of days, featuring Daniel Thompson, Chris Garrett, Andrew Mooney, and Brian Bates. I will, of course, see you then. Uh, go check out The Grit and Spit this week as well. Fun stuff over there. And until next week, this is David Scales for Surf Splendor reminding you to get back into the ocean, share some waves, and as always, shred off.
Sometimes, but sound and vision. 